0: I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew and I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper, I worked in the sex trade, I became a stand-up comedian, and I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there, and let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins, they come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews, and I'm your host, Aaron Berg. Since the dawn of hip hop, one of the most underrated, little talked about stories has been the alliance between black people and Jewish people, united together, growing an art form from the ground up, pushing a culture forward. My guest today is one of those dudes. He and his partner, the Brooklyn rapper Buckshot, created the music label and management firm Duck Down some 25 years ago. Through many incarnations, Andrew Friedman, otherwise known as Drew, has reinvented himself over and over and over again. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, the one and only Drew. Drew. Wow. Welcome to Badass Shoes.
1: Well, what an intro. <laughs>
0: That's like amazing. how it starts with since the dawn of hip hop, like it's this ancient story and your backdrop. It's one of your old colleagues sitting in front of a fire it's like we're gonna collect this story around a campfire I love right. the relevance of it
1: and that and that artist is Sean Price and he would say that this image is him living off the the land like Johnny Rambo that was like a line he would he would go to a lot
0: so I I didn't know that Rambo had influence that went into the rap world I knew that Scarface did I didn't and, know that Rambo did. Uh, I want to talk about him a bit later, but I want to start with you first of all, you got a good Jewish look to you, which hey, not you. everybody can say. It's New York-y, but it's edgy, but it's still Jewish. I like <laughs> that you haven't lost it.
1: Do you know what this This is a pandemic haircut and beard, and you know I'm just trying all different types of things right now if if um if Buckshot saw me more often, he he probably would have a really Rough critique of my of my uh, presentation right now. <laughs> Do
0: you feel like it's reminiscent of like Jews way back when we had to go through the desert for forty years? Do you feel like COVID may last forty years and Jews have to uh, reacquaint themselves with that look?
1: Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's reserved to to Jews, but I think people are just obviously you get away with much more right now. This is it: the Zoom calls and you know the the occasional meeting. You get more boundaries. Do you have pants on? I do. I do. Okay, I, do. I was you. I was running around today. <laughs> uh
0: you were born, I'm guessing here, I want to say early 70s, because that's when I was born. Am I correct?
1: 1970.
0: 1970. That doesn't get earlier 70s than that. In White Plains, New York.
1: I was born in Queens. Where in um, Queens? Um, uh, Forest Hills. That's where I am right now. Yeah. At the Long
0: Island Jewish, L.I.J.?
1: You know, you'll kill me for not knowing. My mom would kill me for not knowing that actual hospital, but I don't know.
0: You don't know, but born and raised in Forest Hills and then moved well, to White Plains?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say raised, but born in, in Forest Hills, lived in Queens till it was about five or six, and then moved to White Plains. So I don't, I don't remember much of um, Queens other than um, going back cause my, my grandparents lived there. So we would go back often.
0: Did the move to white Plains? was there a reason for it? Was it parents felt you had to get out of Queens? Was it business related?
1: I, th- I think that they were, um, they, you know, I think that they were thinking suburbs, house and raise their family there. I had an older brother. Um, and I had to just think from the family, they were ready for a move, but I, I had no say in it at that at that time period or understanding.
0: Yeah, democracy doesn't work really for five or six year olds when they're trying to tell their parents where to live. <laughs> um, how central to your youth was your Judaism in White Plains?
1: Uh, JCC Jewish Community Center. Um, it it I, I didn't grow up in a very uh, religious household. I mean, we, we respected. My father, I would say, would probably be a little more um, traditional. My mother was just like set a bad example. you know, she didn't go to temple on certain holidays. She let us get away with pretty much everything, but they did they did have me in Sunday school. I was bar mitzvahed. Um, you know, but it wasn't just like drilled in on it drilled into us and we kind of had a little flexibility. Like a lot of other uh, Jews and White Plains, um, it, it kind of was, you know respect the culture respect the traditions respect the holidays um but we had a lot of freedom too to just kind of you know do our own thing
0: so reform conservative
1: um conservative
0: it's that's pretty uh high end to be casual about it i was raised reform and we were like bar mitzvah high holidays
1: pardon me pardon me i Reform. reform. Oh, there we bad go. I you see how bad I am? It's, it's <laughs> terrible. Because I'm a reform conservative, and then just go right to orthodox, right? Like yeah. So if you're going go to go the three, left, definitely reform.
0: You could throw um, in other ones. Other people throw in revisionist. They throw in low grade reform. They throw in uh. Would low
1: grade? <laughs> would low grade reform be like? Like, you know, I, I honestly it was like that spectrum. My my mom was very bad. Like, you know, she she would love to pretend. that she she was a great Jew, but, um, you know, she let us get away with a lot, right? It starts with the parents of like, what they kind of make you do.
0: So. I was reformed too. And it was like, you, you go to Sunday school, you go to Hebrew school, you get your bar mitzvah. And then most people at that point check out, except culturally. Is that how it was for you?
1: That that spot on, spot on.
0: A lot of Jewish friends growing up in
1: the neighborhood. Um, You know, I, yes, I had a a handful who I'm still dear friends with today, um, went to Sunday school with them, uh, but White Plains is a, is a unique town for those that, that aren't familiar with it. It's, it's about 30 minutes North of the city and it's a very diverse town. Um, lots of different cultures, lots of different ethnicities, religions. And so, you know, I, I was, uh, very fortunate to like be introduced to all different types of people and wasn't just like you know one one dimensional
0: it's it's the beauty of these cities that are like these melting pots where you're able to sample from all types of culture and find what you really like and what works for you so the bar mitzvah for you was that kind of like a big event or you like i'm just doing this for my family and then we're gonna move on
1: no i it was it was a it was probably more for the party. It was a big party for me. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was like one again. It was a, a rite of passage. Something that I definitely, you know, the family w- was all in on it. And I, I, again, you know, I'll use the word respect. I respected it, and and I got through it. I kind of memorized the the my passage versus being able to straight read it. Yeah. But um, but I did my thing and and we had a great party and, you know, it, it was did it was too. a nice day.
0: And I pretended to read it. You got to just move the the pen, (laughs) really, the pen. That's how Jewish we are. You got to move the pen backwards over the Torah parchment. Right. Um, A lot of similarities between me and you. Uh, My mom was a teacher. She went on to become a principal. My dad uh, was a lawyer, a civil litigation lawyer. Your father was a real estate lawyer. Your mom was a substitute teacher.
1: Damn, you got my whole book, man. Yeah. And you got it's, my whole
0: book. It's amazing uh, the, the contrast between those two professions, you know. And, and I remember seeing my dad when I was growing up, and I was like, okay, I think this is what I'm going to do. And having this input from my mom that everything is about education, and there was a, a lot of talk about, like, feelings and emotions in our lives, you know, because it was, like, the 70s and the 80s, and, like, you need to be open. You need to talk about your feelings. And I think that... For me, that kind of led me to pursuit of an artistic lifestyle. Did you feel those influences early on?
1: Yeah, I think you know my parents definitely were my biggest fans, and they they encouraged me to just like kind of do what I wanted. They encouraged me if I took up I took up DJing in in like high school. Like that was my my entry to like kind of the music, not the music. Well, I mean, say the music business because even you know high school. Like as you got through. Junior, senior year, we started to be able to charge a little bit to put on some parties if you were lucky enough to catch $20, $30, $40 to to put on a DJ event or to DJ a party. But they they um they were very encouraging. And uh I, you know, I I had dreams of of following in my father's footsteps of the attorney. Like I, I felt like that was like the prestigious thing to do, kind of uh, you know, the very smart side of it for me i felt like maybe that would be a, a great career he was very successful um but i did have a a a, a creative bug that uh you know kind of sidetracked that and they didn't they didn't fight me on it or they didn't uh you know challenge me on it they they strictly kind of wanted to, me to you know pursue what i wanted
0: so you have this transversion in your life and you kind of go from the religion of Judaism to the religion of hip hop. How does that happen for a young Jewish kid in White Plains in the 80s? What's your first taste? What makes you go, This is the music that I love?
1: So I remember being in I'm gonna say like first or second grade, don't you know, don't don't kill me on the time, on the exact time, but I remember show and tell and um one of the kids in, in White Plains brought in a rapper's delight uh, a sugar hill gang record with the and it had like it was like light blue and the sugar hill gang had a certain the the label had a, a logo to it and the, the one of my one of my schoolmates brought the record in and he knew all the words to the record and it was like just amazed me even at that young age that he could like you know i don't know what you would call it at that point but he just knew all the words to the record and i wanted to learn all the words to the record and th- you know next thing you know i'm i'm starting to listen to the music. And I I was hooked early. I was one of, I was almost a little bit of an outcast at, at, you know, in school, um, at summer camp, things like that, where it wasn't cool yet to be listening to hip hop. It was, the counselors weren't listening to it. Uh, older kids weren't listening to it and you kind of looked at, you were kind of looked upon more as like a wannabe or, um, you know, they felt like it it shouldn't be something that I, I might've been, taking up so much. So, it's almost. I remember that.
0: Yeah, there was this thing, and I got into it early as well when I started, high school is when I first kind of started to dig rap. And there was this feeling like, if you were, were a white boy and knew it, there was like, you were almost labeled as a nerd because you weren't into this traditional white music that everybody else was like, why aren't you listening to AHA? You know, and there was this vibe, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there is this outcast quality to it. I we had uh, Mark Levin on; he directed a film called White Boys. Did you ever see it?
1: You know what? I I want to say. do we? Um, I think we contributed something to that soundtrack. That's was amazing. We, yeah, uh, you I probably I think we did. did. Was it? Uh, was it on TV? TVT? I think had the soundtrack. I, I if that's the movie I'm thinking of.
0: Yeah, Danny Hawk was in it and he played this like small town white boy that just yeah, thought I he was around. That.
1: Yeah, all right, that's so it. We had a we can we contributed a song. Uh Buck- Buckshot and Smith and & Wesson have a song on the soundtrack for that to that movie. It's amazing. It was a great movie a great movie too. But I, there were kids in White Plains that were just like that character. Because yeah. they might have lived in like you know, maybe they lived in, in the project so they lived outside of the projects and even had more influence from the black culture right then and there. Like I I was like more definitely enamored by it and and drawn into it. But I, I think that I, I didn't, I wasn't that full role. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like also like no, still knowing who you are, um, but trying to find the balance.
0: There is something that, you know, growing up like middle-class in the suburbs, there was something that really drew me to the, the life in the projects and how much more flavorful it seemed. And even though it was like, a not necessarily a have and have not differential, there was this vibe where it's like, oh man, everything seems cooler over there. E- even though it was a few blocks away, cause you didn't feel like you had that culture even in a Jewish home at that time, where it was like, we just have matzo ball soup and ill-fitting suits, but these people are like partying and going to DJ parties and stuff like that. So when you start DJing, are those the first communities you're DJing in, or are you DJing more like in white communities?
1: No, so, uh, you know, it's funny you say that because even, again, growing up in White Plains, and if you do, you know, if anyone listening, just Google it and just look at the city, because a lot of times that it gets... You know, misphrase when people say that they lived in melting pots or white Plains is really like that. It 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 really is, and at a very early age, even grade school, we were having sleepovers with, you know, with our friends, our schoolmates in the projects, and we didn't. A bunch of my Jewish friends and and I that we lived in, you know, houses that were a few miles away. Like again, you know, credit to our parents and the community in general, that it wasn't like frowned upon to say, oh, you can't go over there, you can't spend the night over there, or you can't be friends with that person. Like everything was just kind of wide open. It it amazes me to look back on it now to think about, you know, my parents must what the conversations must have been like, because today there's still, you know, race tension, or there's still you know things that are look, unspo- You know we don't have to go any further than than you know our our hopefully our former president of like you know what goes on in our country and like what goes unsaid and and I don't know. I mean th- those to me I ha- I had a diverse group of friends. So when I started DJing, it would be for high school parties, whether it was a house party or whatever. There just were always a lot of different types of people at the parties. It wasn't always like just white kids or Jewish kids or you know, it, it, it walked across a lot of, a lot of different boundaries.
0: And are you Andrew Friedman at this point in time while you're DJing?
1: No. So I wasn't, you know, Andrew was obviously my birth name. When I got into kindergarten um, or again, first grade, there were three Andrews in the class and the teacher decided that she wasn't going to be able to deal with, Ah, uh, with all of us as Andrew. So one one got Andrew, one got Andy, and one got drew. and i w- I was Drew. So from that point on, i I ran with Drew, even as a you know a child, and that's what my family called me. That's you know, everyone called me that. Probably only a very few select people, um like my uncles and maybe grandparents that called me Andrew. But at that point, I was Drew. There was no drew ha. i was I was Drew ski. okay that was the first that was my first nickname was Drewski probably could add the love Drewski love but I I didn't go that far but I was DJ Drewski It's a good name yeah there's a there's actually a very popular DJ today on Hot 97 name of DJ Drewski much bigger obviously than I am but he uh I, I joke with him telling him that I had the name first
0: so when you're you're DJing you're how old at this point in time
1: what's what what's like junior senior year high school you're like what 16
0: 17 16 17 so that's about the time I I've been kicked out of five high schools and then I got I got sent (laughs) to boarding school but the third high school I went to was a preparatory academy in Toronto where I'm from and that's kind of where uh hip-hop started to influence me now at that time I remember the first thing, I acted out this thing with another guy to ice tease colors. So this is where it was. So we did this thing where we walked around in a circle doing Crips versus Bloods colors. And at that time, the fashion was the old Jordans, uh, British Knights, track suits. Uh, I never went like full on Kangol hat, but that's where it was. And it started to kind of take on this thing And it gave me this identity that obviously put me in with a different crew of people. I never wanted to just hang out with the people that I grew up with. So that's where I started to go hang out with these people that lived in the projects and stuff and, and garnered the respect from these people. Um, did you feel that change both in terms of fashion and in terms of the people you started hanging out with?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I was definitely influenced by the whole culture. Um, what, you know, again, what I could get away with that, that in, until you can start dressing yourself, right. <laughs> my mom was probably still laying out my clothes till I was 11 or 12. Yeah. Um, but yeah, name, bu- you know, uh, belt buckles and baggy clothes. And I had like playboy sweatshirts and whatever might've, whatever I might've been in at the time that I felt was cool. I was definitely, you know, going for it. Um, but you know, my mom grounded me a bit there too. I don't think she would have, she would have, uh, same thing. I, I wasn't putting on Kangos and, and you know, certain things that were just beyond my reach. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, British Knights is what I went with. And then I just ordered a pair on Amazon like two months ago, and now I wear them. And everybody old school that sees me on the train goes, those are great kicks. But uh, it's like such a small culture of, of people that really I remember get remember that. So- yeah. My influences at the time, and this is almost as far because after that, I did not stay with rap, were Ice-T, Public Enemy, EPMD, and I thought that the greatest dude alive at that time was Big Daddy Kane, just for sheer tempo and speed. Uh, What were your original influences that got you into rap?
1: So going back, I, I said Sugar Hill Gang. I'll go, you know, give them the the initial credit. Um, Run D.M.C. just just took me to an, like a whole other space, like sucker MCs. Like when that when that song came out, because now all of a sudden it just got a little a little rougher, you know. and, and not that I was some tough kid or anything, but just you pick up the energy of a song, right? You don't have to be a gangster to like a gangster song. So um, I, I was big on Houdini, which is which I'll even say um, Houdini was was prior to Run DMC for me. So there was something very clean and melodic about Houdini that I also liked, just the way that they that they you know interacted with each other as a group. Um, but when it got to Run DMC, and you know you th- you, you throw out Run DMC today and everyone knows the name, but you know picture it back then in in '83 or '84, and it's just an emerging group, right? It's not this, you know, this big commercial thing. And that, that, that to me really stood out of, of, again, the duo of them and how they interacted with each other. Um, Public Enemy was big uh, for me. And then, of course, I got to throw in Beastie Boys because that to me was when the white kids that maybe looked at me like I was the outcast, all of a sudden that pulled a bunch of my white friends into hip hop. Maybe for all the wrong reasons, but it did it, and that kind of like you know it was like almost like I told you type of moment <laughs> at that point. It was more people came on board, um, so beastie boys and i and I did respect them as as artists, and I like you know love their music and the energy and and what they projected
0: now this is early 1980s you're in white Plains there there is a boom happening in New York City at that time, uh you know in terms of art, the art surrounding rap, um, people are spray painting all over the place. The Bronx is booming, and you're just minutes away from that. Do you feel like you were at the epicenter of it because there was nothing you weren't like, oh the West coast scene is really tearing it up at this point. <laughs> it was all east coast at that point
1: yeah you know i don't i didn't feel i didn't feel the energy of the city right and, and I, that that comes maybe five years later for me six years later but but definitely the music from the DJs, um, you know, 107.5 and Marley Marl and Chuck Chill Out and Red Alert, and you know, these are your, these are the DJs in your backyard. And you only got hip hop on really Mr. Magic uh, Friday and Saturday nights. It was like a weekend thing, even for the stations. There was no Hot 97 at the time. It was yeah. 98.7 Kiss and um, and BLS. And, and then if you could tune in, you could get the college radio, you could catch like Wild Man Steve um, out in Long Island, like different Ralph McDaniels video music box. Like, so living close enough to the city, you did pick up on like the energy of what was going on. But to, to you know, experience it firsthand, I wasn't like going into the city or a Brooklyn or Queens, going to clubs at, at that age.
0: So let's, let's jump ahead. At, at a point... You're ready to follow in your father's footsteps. You're studying for the LSATs. What happens there?
1: I took the LSATs. Um, I don't think I did too well, but, you know, I'm uh, studying for them. And I I was an intern at the same time from a a friend of mine, John Cohen, who founded, along with Rob Stone, Fader Magazine. Those guys still run the magazine um, and Cornerstone Promotion. Uh, Some more badass Jews you should probably talk to. Um, and I'm, he got me an internship, uh, to meet Rob Stone and Rob Stone was working at EMI records. And so EMI records at the time was pushing vanilla ice and arrested development. And as an intern, I got assigned to a group called fifth platoon and they were a group out of Queens. And that was like my introduction. This is, this is actually over the summer. I'm I'm jumping around too much. This, This was summer internships that I did while I was at Syracuse. Uh, before before the LSATs. But when I graduated Syracuse and I was like in this, like, all right, you know, I'll take the test and then I'll maybe take a year off and go to law school. Um, Rob got me a job with Nervous Records, a guy named Michael Weiss, who ran a company called Nervous Records. And it's there that I met Buckshot, who was just signed to a single deal at the label. And meeting Buckshot, and the development of that—that just—that changed the whole trajectory of where I was going. So it, it happened fast.
0: So basically, you're living at home in White Plains. You're making seventy-five bucks per week as an intern, commuting. Where are you getting,
1: are you getting your material from?
0: I had <laughs> somebody like, go through your garbage. <laughs> uh, <is> amazing, <laughs> uh, Josh Swade, one of the uh, best researchers in the game. Yeah, big uh, up to Josh. So you you have. And I think that this is an underrated thing to say. You don't really have a lot of pressure on you because you're making 75 bucks a week. And I I think that there's this thing where we talk about Jewish people that go into the arts and I did it as well. And we have lean years and we have tough years. But do you also feel that there's like a, a freedom or a privilege that we have when we come from, you know, middle or upper class families where our parents have it set up so that we're free to pursue our dreams and what we want to in life.
1: A hundred percent. You hit it dead on the head. I mean, you know, I've had that conversation with many, many people and yes, it's a privilege. It, it It is. It's part of, you know, we may not recognize ourselves as, you know, we might think that we're so immune to the conversation, but absolutely, you know, even going back to the internships over the summer, I know lots of kids who they had to go and work at foot. I actually worked at Foot Locker too, but, kids have to work to bring home some money or they have to you know, work to bring home allowance or just to have food or to help support. And when you have, when you come from a household where, yes, they, you know, my parents would say, don't worry about making $75 a week. We're going to help you with the train or we're going to help you with, you're not going to have to worry about where your food is coming from or whatever it is. That That's a- absolutely an advantage. Um, and I was, you know, blessed to be in that position. I, I wasn't aware of it, but, There's no question about it. I felt
0: the same way where it was like there was these lean years where, you know, I was really hard up and I was living in like an eight by 10 room when I first moved to New York and you go through this struggle. Um, But there is that element of like, I know it's going to be okay. I know that I know it's going to work out. And I think that that's something that was instilled in us through our parents, right, where they're like, just work hard and follow your dream and something's going to happen. Did you have
1: that? Yes. Like, again, you hit it, you hit it head on. And, and look, I think it's, it's it'd be unfair to generalize it and say, you know, all, all kids that came from our backgrounds or whatever have that too. I think the key word you said was work hard, yeah. you know, and, and my father instilled that, like my, my father was like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how much money he had or we had, he was making me earn whatever he gave me. He was making me understand the value of dollars, the value of hard work, it wasn't just, you know, handed to me. And I had friends where their parents would just hand them everything. And of of course, if I needed it, it was going to be there. So you also were were spot on if it takes some of the pressure off. But I felt a different type of pressure, which was not trying to fall into that role where I would just take, you know what what I mean? Like the pressure would be like, I want to succeed so I don't have to ask and so I don't have to rely and yeah, it's nice to know that you have it, but it's also nice to know that you're earning and you're earning your keep.
0: So- yeah. It, it's something that um, pushes you too. And I think that my parents, you know, and I'm sure I feel this the same way about my daughter is I always want my kids to do better than me. And, I'm, and I bet my parents thought that too, where they're like, we want our kids to be able to do what they wanna do when they grow up. you know, We don't wanna have them thrown into something where they're like, I just gotta make ends and that's it. I think that mm-hmm. there's something really unique about our human existence where it's like, look, you're on this earth for a reason, you gotta pursue your passions. And I think that it's great that we're able to do that, to go into these vocations. Whereas years ago, the Jewish thing was like, become a lawyer or a doctor like your dad was, and that's what you're here for. And I like right. that our parents set a precedent where they're like, go, go fail, go do whatever <laughs> you have to do to be you. And there is a lot of failure in
1: it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was fortunate and and, and I just use that word fortunate because I didn't even know I, I, you know, when I met Buckshot, things accelerated quickly. And we, you know, we had a lot of success in our very, very early young age, you know, young years and I don't, I don't think we even appreciated or understood the type of success that we had at that age. You know, it's hard. It's hard because even as you're doing well, you, you're looking around, and you think you could be doing even better. Or, but looking back on it, you know, as a, as a 23, 24 year old, um, you know, fresh in the in the game, we had a lot of wins like very early, um, and that that allowed. I, you know, I'm not sure. I think I'm sure my dad was looking at it from the sidelines of like I'm going to keep a close eye on this. Yeah. And he started to see that, you know, a business was developing and and I brought him right in. Like I brought and and Buckshot welcomes him as well. You know, we brought him into the fold in terms of like literally that version of like, oh, here comes my dad. Right. Like I was still young enough at that point where that's all I knew where to turn to when legal, when legal stuff started flying around. Right? I didn't have a lawyer yet. I didn't have like, I, just so much inexperience that it, I was still that young kid that brought my dad into what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> were you like, oh, my God, he brought his dad in. Like I used to ask so my dad.
0: Think. I'd be like, what do we do with this guy wants to sue me for calling him a dickhead in the audience? Uh, <laughs> um, it, it used to happen in Canada. It doesn't happen here so much. So you're working at an indie label called Nervous Records where you were first an intern, and they were a dance label originally, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah then you become the head of the company's hip hop department. so oh, how's yeah. that happen? and then walk me th-
1: cuz there's three people and all of a sudden this this black moon record who got the props starts to to you know make some noise and I'm the only person that's really working the hip hop. and so you know back then again no internet, you know, is a, a, no computer, I didn't even have a computer. I had notebooks with like record stores. I had, each day I would wear a different hat. One day I would be like a publicist one day I would do retail promotion where I was calling record stores, asking them if they needed the album. Uh, one day I was calling radio DJs, college college mix shows. So I started to cut my teeth across all different departments. And that, that gave me a huge advantage as I would learn, you know, of working at a major label or even a bigger label, that you would just get assigned to one department. And that's kind of where you would learn your trade or make your relationships. And I had the freedom to just kind of like, Every day, just do something else, you know, like see where I could catch a win or catch some something to elevate the career or, or speed up the process. And that's kind of like what I did. It That's that made me the head of hip hop at Nervous. It, it, it uh, there was no one else. So, I mean, there were a few other people, but not not doing the promotion of marketing like that. And then I, I forged this relationship with Buckshot that became very um, personal uh, we became friends and and the group evil D and, and 5FT um, and before you knew it I was like running around with these guys to all the shows and taking them to radio interviews and it you know it, it took some time for the for the first record which was who got the props to kind of catch fire so it was like again not in this day and age it's hard to imagine it back then but it took about eight to nine months for the record to like really catch yeah um and during that time you're putting in a lot of work you're going into you're going into different markets you're going to record stores you're doing making appearances um you know anything and everything that you can do I was kind of on the scene for but at that young age too my mind wasn't thinking yet about my own label or being a manager or like I I just wasn't there I was just like I also thought that I was a rapper, so it was like just, you know, I'm still young enough where it was just still fun. Yeah. And I, I was absorbing everything and loving it. I wanted to be there.
0: Now, is what's going through your head at this time is like, I'm going to be a white puff daddy? and No,
1: uh, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. But you get no. to
0: rap on song You to Man under the name Big Druha, right? Yeah. With Black yeah. Moon. So how was yeah. that?
1: Not just Black Moon, but... Black Moon, Smith & Wesson, and Havoc from Mob Deep. Okay. You know what type of credibility? Whoa, well, whoa!
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you were good.
1: That, no, I sucked. But, <laughs> but um, I sucked. I wasn't good. But, you know, I, I use this analogy a lot. I say that I'll, everyone, if you grow up and you play baseball, right, everybody throws the baseball around in the backyard. And then some kids are really good in the rec league. And then some kids make the high school and they become really good and college and so forth, right? Pros, minor leagues, it keeps going up in elevation. Doesn't mean that the kid that wasn't very good, that just still liked to throw the ball around in the backyard, doesn't mean that he still doesn't like to do it, you know, or still doesn't mean that he shouldn't do it. And I love to rap. Like I loved hip hop. I like to break dance. I love the music. There wasn't, you know, cyphers in our cars were like a part of the culture. It was a part of like we, amongst our friends and our crew, like we thought we could battle each other. And like, we all sucked. So like, <laughs> it, it's not until you get around a professional MC that you understand the difference. And so for me, I didn't understand the difference until I got around Buckshot and Smith and Wesson. And then by, by, you know, by association, I was in sessions with Tupac and, you know, Wu-Tang Clan and, um, you know, brand new being and like just different people all of a sudden that I'm in these sessions. It didn't take me long to figure out that I was not good.
0: <laughs> so when do but, you go, I I quit the rap thing and focus on the business? How long does that take?
1: Well, see, here's the little, here's the one little curveball. It's like I stuck with the hip hop. I had a partner in college. His name was Gru, um, and he was actually very good. Another white Jewish kid. He was actually, we formed this group. And so he was actually the better rapper of the both of us. But I was a little more charismatic. I probably had a little more like, like I didn't give a fuck in me. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't scared of the stage. I, I you know, I kind of like, like the attention, things like that. So um, anyway, by meeting Buckshot, I made a deal with Buck. He, he didn't know how to drive. And so I told him that I would give him driving lessons if he would help me with my flow. And so Buck started to break down the highs and the lows of the flow. And I remember we'd be like, I'd take him to like a parking lot and he'd be driving my car and I'd be kicking it. I'd be like, you know, spinning verses for him that, and he'd be like, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. (laughs) But he was only focused on the driving of the car, but he, to his credit, like, and this is where it was almost like, um, again, a sports analogy of like, you know, back when we were growing up, sometimes you'd see that person that would win the chance to go to like a football training camp for the day where they get to go to like Yankees spring training for the day. That's kind of like, to me, what happened with me is like one day Buckshot, he knew I was working at it and he gave me a beat and he said, he gave it to Smith and Wesson. I happened to be with them that day. And he said, look, everyone write a verse to this beat. We're going to make a song called you the man. And if your verse is good, like it's going to go on, on the record. And he gave me the cassette too. Again, Hannah, I'm showing my age, but he gave me the cassette too. And I was like, what are you doing? He was like, go write a verse. Like he was like, put something together. And, you know, he gave me an opportunity and I went back and I, I got with my old partner and he had had some rhymes that were, you know, some lines that I, I thought could work. And then I got with tech from Smith & Weston. We were going to rent the van one day and little by little, we pieced that verse together. I, I say we, cause I didn't just do it alone. Um, but when it all came together... Man, that verse was like, they all I, I didn't know. I did the verse in the studio. We were at D D Studios. The beat miners produced the track, Mr. Walton Evil D, they were as tough as they came when it when it when it came to like the, the standards for hip hop. Like and Fife from Tribe Called Quest was was there that day too. And I, I knew like Walton E were kind of looking at me like, man, this kid's gonna fuck up this verse. He's gonna fuck up the track. And when I when I did it and I walked back into the vocal booth everybody in the room was just smiling. Like, Walt dap me up. Like, I was like, I didn't know. <laughs> like, I didn't know if I delivered or how it went, but like, everyone was like bugging out in the room. And that was just like the experience of a lifetime, man. But I I knew I just got by. And, and when I say that, like, could I have kept at it? I think so. But, you know, we used to go to like radio shows like Stretch Armstrong and Bobito and different places. And again, the game was different back then. Every time you went up to a radio show, you had a freestyle, you had to be ready to go. And little by little, I realized that I wasn't ready to go and that I couldn't do it the way they could do it. And I couldn't write the way they could write. And I, you know, I just kind of fell back and, and played my role.
0: So you're really tight with buckshot at that point. When do you make the decision to leave nervous and venture out on your own and Why?
1: So Buck introduced me to Tech and Steel, and that was Smith and Wesson, and we put out the first record with Smith and Wesson, The Shining, on Nervous, and we so now we had these two albums out, Enter the Stage and The Shining, and they both commercially did very well, and um, editorial did you know whatever in a critique way they did very well. So we just felt like we weren't getting what we were supposed to be getting, like we didn't know the business well enough. But we just knew that we sold a lot of records. We were having a lot of success from touring. Um, first statements came in, and we were expecting, like naive, we were expecting that we were going to see some big checks and and you know start seeing some money. And when it didn't happen, I think me and Buck just felt like it it never was going to happen there. And so, rather to focus on the the relationship with nervous, because look, in fairness to them. They had a contract, whether it yeah. was a good contract or a bad contract. They were older. They were more experienced. They had a contract. But what I think that Buck and I realized was we were we were never going to deliver another group into that system for a small advance. And that, you know, to, you brought it up earlier, but that was the time of Puff. That was the time of Master P, uh, the beginnings of, of Bad Boy, the beginnings of No Limit. And we felt like, all right, why not us? Like, let's go try to shop our own deal for the management company, which was called Duckdown, And let's go see if we can find a partner to, to give us a deal. And that's what we did. We found priority records. Um, and we, you know, brought forward Health Skelter and OGC, also known as the Fab Five. And that, you know, that laid the foundation for Duckdown.
0: And is there this moment when you leave where it's kind of like, we're not going to get rich working for somebody else. We're not going to be able to be as creatively fulfilled working for somebody else. Do you think some of that comes down from your family as well, or is that just stuff that you learn while you're in the game?
1: That came, that came from Buckshot, because yeah. I I obviously was playing it a little safe, and I probably was a little intimidated and a little scared of you know, these guys were older. These guys were the, I was interning for them less than a year or two ago. The the guy who ran Nervous, his father was involved in the label. He was an OG. He was like a, you know, very vocal dude, very loud. I didn't even know how to stand up to them. Like I didn't, I didn't even think that, you know, that that was going to be a move for me or how I would even approach that. And one day I remember Buckshot came into the office and he, he basically, he flipped for both of us. (laughs) He flipped on them for both of us. And he, he basically told them that I was no longer like I was quitting. I was, I was, I wasn't doing it anymore. And so like he gave me that shove that was necessary to kind of step out. Um, I can't, you know, piece it all together, but I just know he was the battery in my back that gave me the confidence. And, you know, again, going back to what you said earlier, probably what, what was the worst scenario that was going to happen for me is that I was going to take a step back. I wouldn't have a small salary or whatever it was, but we were going to venture out and try and do this on our own.
0: You had a really symbiotic relationship with him. And th- there's this history uh, of great relationships between black people and Jewish people in hip hop, but let's back it up. Both sets of people have been tremendously persecuted throughout history, enslaved, murdered, admonished to ghettos, and uh, Blacks and Jews have had secondhand statuses uh, on both accords. Can you speak about the two communities, the similarities, and any thoughts that you have on why Black and Jewish communities are traditionally so tight?
1: I mean, I, w- I was very sensitive to the relationship. I think you, you mentioned Jerry Heller in the beginning. You know, I never would want to be kind of like put in that box because he had a very bad um, reputation or uh, it was like he was kind of taking advantage versus you know famous videos with him like hey I haven't heard your record but I, I hear it's hot like you know yeah. he' kind of no even though he forged a, a very special relationship with easy there still was like a lot of you know questionable tactics about his business um, so I was very mindful of the relationship uh Buck and Smith and Wesson and a lot of the guys uh, were you know, they practice 5%, right? I don't know if you're you're familiar with that, that, I don't know. I don't want to say it's a religion, but it's, it's based on some Muslim. I don't want to speak at all and misrepresent it. but I I know a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it basically, you know, there was a lot of teachings from it that said that, you know, white people were the devil and white people were, were evil. And that down the line, a white person would probably do you wrong. Um, Know Jews not not to be excluded, and so I'm you know picking up on a lot of intimate conversations that I had no business probably hearing, but whether I'm driving a car or whether I was you know at Buck's house or wherever it might be, I'm now picking up on you know hearing these conversations. So it's not to challenge and to say whether it was right or whether it was wrong, but it's just to say like that was these were. They were having these sessions of of building and teaching one another and kind of, you know, coming up with plans to be strategic with how they move, not just in the music business, but in life in general, you know, they call it build and destroy, like build each other up, destroy shit that is bullshit, you know, much things that you wouldn't be enlightened to if you weren't on the inside, if you didn't get to see it. And I was getting to see things firsthand. Again, I didn't. Take that lightly. I I, I, tr- I walked a very very fine line on it, and, I, and that's where I think I'd really developed a unique relationship with Buck because, I, you know, I learned to like kind of speak to him about it and say that certain things may be uncomfortable because I felt like maybe there were times when these conversations were happening that I shouldn't even be in the room. You know, like they that maybe well you're talking about white people and saying well here I am like what makes me any different? You know, right. like what what makes me. And so I, a lot of things I questioned, um, you know, internally and didn't have a lot of places to turn. And that's where, you know, I did turn the buck to kind of start speaking about some of these things and to get his point of view from it. And then eventually that, you know, led to, to broader conversations. Um, but I wanted to be I wanted to break the mold of, of anything that they saw as, um, you know, being in a position where I was trying to take advantage or be disingenuous or be there for the wrong reasons. And again, being close to them in age and having a love for the music, it made it a lot easier because at the time, you know, my mind just wasn't on this huge business yet. You know, and they always say to you, what do you want to do in five years? Or where do you see yourself in 10 years? Like that question, imagine, you know, imagine you can go back and think of yourself as 23 or 24 and someone asked you that. Again, I was just kind of happy to like, to be living it. I thought it was like a dream come true. And that's what made me happy. It wasn't, it wasn't really the big business or money at that point.
0: It's this thing where if you're the only white guy there, you want to break down these negative stereotypes and be like, no, no, we're not all like that. Or especially being Jewish, not, not quote unquote white. uh, But be like, no, look, I'm a good dude and I'm here not to take advantage. It's a situation that I've been in. A lot as well. What do you make of the Jewish attraction to hip hop? Why are so many Jews drawn to this art form that isn't inherently our own?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, again, I I take pride and and I'm glad that for me that I can honestly say in a conversation, you know, even even to you, like that I started at such a young age that it wasn't just a business proposition for me. And I I do think that, uh, you know, there is big business to be had in the music industry. I think that a lot of um, Jews were involved in the music industry well before hip hop, right? Maybe R&B and rock and roll and different types of formats. And as it gets passed down and the music changes and the genres change in terms of what becomes popular and what becomes successful, you happen to have a lot of Jews in the business. And so I think that there are some that just happen to be right place, right time. And like, Hey, this is the music I'll embrace it. And there were others that, you know, really had a passion for the music. And, um, you know, I can't can't generalize it and speak for all Jews or or everybody. I just, you know, again, know for me, it it came from a, a place of passion, um, And I I don't know. It's tough, man. It's a tough, it's a tough question. I, I feel, you know, you feel guilty sometimes of like being like, well, I agree. Like what makes me different from the next guy? But I, I, I do think that there are differences um, when you really drill into it.
0: There's this great kind of kumbaya relationship, you know, uh, that, that you've seen in your life that I've seen in my life. Like, uh, between black men, Jewish men, black women, Jewish women. The other side of it, in your dealings with the rap game, have you seen big misconceptions about Jews? Have you seen any anti-Semitism? I mean, it does exist in rap. It does, you talk about uh, the Muslim faith and I know that there's Sex of Nation of Islam and you can watch Nick Cannon trying to claw away at sound bites recently. What what anti-Semitism have you experienced, if any, and uh, have there been misconceptions of you as a Jew in the business?
1: Yeah, I, again, absolutely. I think that you you know you you're speaking to those points. I think that you there you are. I, I was in I was in a meeting with um with um with Farrakhan. I was Buckshot was invited to a. Uh, he was invited to a, a, a function. I, I, he was having a gathering of certain hip hop artists to kind of bring them together to discuss issues in the business and kind of figure out a way to bring everyone together and find out how they could uplift. And I remember it was me and Dave Mays. Dave Mays was the owner of The Source magazine. Um, and we were the only two white guys in the room. And Farrakhan, he he opened up the meeting. I, and I mean, there were there were a lot of like famous hip hop artists there at the time. And again, I, all of a sudden I found myself there, like Buck brought me along. I didn't really know what I was stepping into. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's not to say that there was an semitism I think that it, it's, it, again, it was about empowering, right? It was about building. It's about saying, how do we keep this, not to ourselves, but how do we keep this so we don't get robbed from it? How do we keep this and protect it? How do we benefit from it? How do we prosper from it? And I think some of those become the conversations. And if you hear the word, you know, Jews can be very sensitive, right? Like I have Jewish friends that if you hear anything about a Jew, they automatically become extremely defensive. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. It's like that, that's, we can do no wrong. And I think that for me, it was like being a little more open-minded to saying, well, maybe the point of view of this person needs to be understood a little bit more of like where they're getting it from and why they feel a certain way. Again, not to say that it's right or it's wrong, but it, it, you have to put a little more, you have to put a little more research into it and, and not take it so personal to understand where maybe the attacks come from or stem from. And an attack is a strong word, but you know, that's sometimes what, what it is.
0: I've had similar incidents where uh, you know, I, I make jokes about everything and continue to walk that tightrope. So whether it's race or sex, I, I make jokes and everyone's an equal target. And somebody once got offended and they're like, oh, he would feel different if we were making jokes about the Holocaust. Or, And I was like, no, nah, I wouldn't because the art form that I delve into deals. It's an equal opportunity offender. So I, I feel the same way. And then I can also see where the bitterness would come from on somebody else's side to attack me. So I understand. But to, th- that's a moment to be in this room with Farrakhan and to be, to be standing there and kind of be the odd man out with just you and another white-skinned guy must have felt. And, and you're still taking it in. You're, you're letting yourself be educated by what this guy's saying and saying, where is oh, this coming my- from?
1: And I remember going back and telling my dad, like, I remember, I was like, dad, I was in a meeting with Minister Farrakhan. And my father was like, oh, he's anti, you know, like, right away, boom, he's anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, like, well, dad, what do you know about him? Like, it was one of the most brilliant, you know, conversations. He's so eloquent. He's so precise. He's so calculating in, in his words, like hearing him speak is beautiful, right? Whether there's obviously a lot of stuff that you can dig up on 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 the sides of it. And I'm not saying that that, you know, those things don't exist or things that he said may might have been controversial or offensive. I'm not taking any of that away. But what he was speaking about that day, you know, I I I was drawn in by it. And I and I went home to try to like explain it to my dad and say like you gotta have an open mind to it. And you know, my dad was just more like nah, he's done certain things and he, he it was hard for him to get past that. Yeah. He's, you know, but it wasn't so much for me and it was <laughs> he um in that meeting that day and I, I I would say there was about 25 30 of us and again I said two to white people he he and I was kind of trying to sit it was one of these tables that were um like a U a U table we were in a in a Marriott in Midtown and so it was like a conference room and I was trying to sit behind Buckshot. Cause again, once I got in there, I realized that I probably shouldn't be in here, but Buck yeah. brought me. So that's all I needed. Right. Like Buck was the one that brought me. I didn't ask to go da da da. So I I'm okay with that. I'm like, Buck will, and he would speak up for me. But I remember he he started the meeting off with, you know, um, Asalaam Alaikum to everyone in the room. And he said, and to my Jewish brothers, um, Shalom. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, he saw me, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, right at that point, I'm looking around. I'm like, uh, Jewish brothers? Like, oh, so that's me, and that's him over there. Like, he's totally aware that we're in the room. And, yeah. you know, he kind of like said some things in that meeting. And again, because of the time and that has gone by, I can't paraphrase it correctly. But he, you know, he wanted us to go back. He spoke on some of his accusations of being anti Semitic. He defended it. And it's almost like he wanted us to go back and share you know, what he was, what he was saying to, uh, you know, to like how I did to my father, you know, to go back and kind of say, not everything is exactly as it seems, but. um, Yeah,
0: there's this moment where I want to jump in and say from what I know of him, I would be like, oh, okay, I classify him as an anti-Semite. But then I would also say people have heard my comedy and would say, oh, his jokes are racist or homophobic. And then upon further inspection, people would be like, oh no, it's satire or it's that. So I, I do think that there is something to be said about in-person conversations. And I think that's something that is truly lacking now, like if you're saying you're there firsthand and you leave with this different perspective than people are going to get from listening to sound bites or reading quotes, then there's right. something to be said about that. And it's something worth exploring. And, and I feel like th- that would lead to more solutions and problems in the world.
1: Yeah. And 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 it's time periods, man, it's different, different eras. Like he's a you know, he's a, he's a, an older guy coming from a you know, from a different generation from where it's constant. You know what what they were up against, and and the the, the civil rights and the the, and the things that they were going through were just like unfathomable. It's so-
0: amazing now, though, that 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 reasoning wouldn't stand where it's like, if you go, Oh, it's a different time. You know what I mean? Like SJWs will jump down your throat. because like, well, no, it's a, no, just cause Chris Rock told Jimmy Fallon that he could put, put black makeup on. Doesn't mean that it's okay. And Chris, La- Chris Rock's like, no motherfucker. It is okay. But it's mm. like people being offended on behalf of other people. It's a really weird contradiction, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm glad you open up about that. It's such a, a rare opportunity to be in a room like that.
1: Um, yeah. I have, I have mixed, mixed feelings about it. Like i mixed, you know, like you don't want to be, you don't want to be like where you're not defending your family, your tradition, yeah. your people, like, where you know, but at the same time, like I said, I don't, I also don't, I don't just go along with everything that, you know, you got it. you got to dig a little bit deeper. You, you have got to. a
0: question. Yeah. yeah you I got agree. a question. I agree. Um, go to the nineties, golden era of hip hop. you got a great company called Duck Down. It's successful. You guys are making noise in the business. You have this backing from Priority Records. Uh, you're living the dream, I would say. And then what happens?
1: Well, we um, Priority folded into it. They were bought out by a company called Capital.
0: And what's life like at this point? Are you balling? You got you got like nice cars. You fucking living in a nice pad. You you're living hip hop.
1: Yeah, we're doing we're doing well. But it remember I said earlier, you never think, you never you never feel like you're doing as well as what perception might be. Right. And so we went through a series of like bad deals, and even though we left the nervous deal was horrible, right? And we went into a production deal at Priority that gave us a lot of overhead and gave us a lot of upfront money but we're spending a lot of money too on marketing and promotion and staff and offices and all these things that you're not acquiring as much as you might think. Um, and so, you know, we bounced around from deal to deal, but that deal afforded us um, it, it did it afforded us nice things and, and, we're doing well, but we're also working really hard and we're looking at artists around us like Wu-Tang Clan or um, you know, Biggie but Nas that that are steps ahead of us you know artists on Def Jam Onyx groups at the time that were like you know doing better than we were doing and so you're always kind of in the music business I think that that's you're always guilty of looking over your shoulder not even guilty of it but like maybe you should be right because you're you're kind of always benchmarking yourself against your your peers. It's
0: where all the expressions come from. Don't hate the player, hate the game. There's so many <laughs> hip hop expressions that are about like envy or or you know looking right. at someone else's success.
1: So we so we're doing well, but we're still not we don't think we're doing well enough, you know, and that and that is the fight and the struggle. Um and we eventually we our, our deal at priority basically expired. And next thing you know, we were like back in my apartment um with no with no backing, with no, uh, you know, overhead, like everything was just gone. Like literally on one day we were on a, in a beautiful penthouse suite. We had like eight offices and everything. And then, and literally like a day later we had to like move out. And I, I remember I took the copy machine <laughs> this big ass copy machine. I'm like, well, I'm not taking my copy machine. You know, I'm taking it. Remember the movie, the jerk. Yeah. And he was like when they started taking everything. Yeah. Remember and he was like, "Well, you're not taking this." And he, and he like grabbed a picture and he, so I grabbed the copy machine and I brought the copy machine into my one bedroom apartment in the city. And I don't care how well you're doing. A one bedroom apartment in the city is still a one bedroom apartment in the city. Yeah, And I put I put this big ass copy machine in my kitchen.
0: <laughs> was it a Xerox or a Canon? It was,
1: it was probably either or. I don't know. This yeah. shit jammed up all the time, but <laughs>
0: It's the worst thing to take from the office.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, cause I was like, damn, we use the copy machine a lot. You know, we were, we were making pamphlets and. <laughs> you
0: don't need it anymore. You can just carry a little phone with you and then. Click exactly.
1: In. And the How- next thing you know, like all the artists and every now, now, now the business is being run out of my apartment and that, you know, it it became a brand new fight and a, and a brand new challenge.
0: And then how do you pick up the pieces? What happens once you kind of hit this reset? We,
1: we kind of went back to square one and that, that you know, this, this leads to maybe the Sean Price piece of it. Like Sean started putting out, um, we started putting out 12 inches. Pause. Would tell, Sean would tell me to say pause every time I say 12 inch, he would say pause. But we started putting out, we went back to putting out singles, like forget albums, cause we no longer had these big budgets. We signed a few of our groups to other labels because we couldn't give them the deals that they needed. That, that, that killed me. I remember we, we signed Smith and Weston to Raucous records, like all the hip hop heads out there that know that label, they know the name Raucous. That's where Talib Kweli, Faro Manch, uh, Most Deaf, they were signed to uh, Raucous. And because we didn't have a deal any longer, no one to fund our record. I'm sitting on some groups that had, you know, major standing in the game and they needed to record we couldn't afford to do it, so we, you know, we went out and we did some individual deals, and and that that just, uh, you know, I remember that that feeling was horrible. But then we went back to um, the basics of just putting out one song at a time, and little by little, we we kind of built up the catalog, and we had some, you know, some nice successes and some nice wins, and we were able to land a new distribution deal um, with a company called Koch. And that was the first time when we, we did the deal with Koch where we had a full understanding that we never wanted to be in the position again where someone was funding us and where we were relying on them for offices and they could just take it away with the push of a button. So at that point we just asked for very little. And that, that was really the true, you know, that was like the true moment for duck down to form as as a as a true business.
0: Um it's 25 years later what's your relationship like with buck now
1: um it's still it's still nothing but love nothing but respect um, obviously our our day-to-day has changed you know quite drastically from the time of when i started i i've, I've held different positions in this in this business um, i went on to work for uh, an agency called cornerstone i mentioned john and, and rob i ended up renting some office space from them uh, and then ended up taking on a position with them. I I worked there for 10 years. I became a consultant for different labels. Different people hired me buckshot went on to do different ventures on his own from, you know, a sneaker brand to, uh, writing books to, you know, just different, different things that we each explored on our own. But when Buck and I get together and, and, you know, we're in a room, it doesn't matter how much time has gone by. It's like, you know, we both go back to that, that, that mind frame, that that sense of humor, that understanding of one another that is hard to explain. Um, you know, he has a, a great understanding of, of me and a great respect for, you know, what I want to do and giving me space and, you know, vice versa. Um, he's a very unique person. Um, he's selfless. He w- He's the type of guy that would give you the shirt off his back. You know, again, an expression that Probably gets overused, but that's Buck. If he if he loves you, um, he would do it for his family. He would do it for his friends. He he puts other people before him. Uh, so I don't know. I get emo- I get emotional when I when I sp- when I you know speak and think of Buck. It's not the story doesn't end exactly how we envisioned it. Right? We never like hit the super monstrous home runs and platinum records and all these things that that we envisioned but we had a lot of success and in some ways that never broke us apart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes you get so big and there's, there's so much there that that ends up breaking up crews and units. And for some reason and somehow 25 years later, you know, we're still, we're still together through, you know, through the entity.
0: It's an amazing story. And he had his own sneaker line and he was like this brand, uh, did you ever want to do stuff like that? Like, for instance, did you ever want to have your own brand of hot sauce called Badass Jew Hot Sauce that is out for the Badass Jew podcast right now that you will be sent a bottle of right after this interview? Badass Jew Hot Sauce, available at silkcityhotsauce.com. Use code BADASS. It is so good, it'll make you clamped. Did you ever think about doing that?
1: That was fucking amazing. See, Buckshot would respect that to another level. Buckshot could do a great drop you and him would have a lot more, you know, you and him would have a lot more in common on that level. But um, no, I, I, um, I, I branched, when I went to Cornerstone, it, it, it showed me another side of the business. It showed me another side of my own capabilities of my own relationships of different things that I could put to use. You know, I, I learned along the way that, that the hustle of of the business wasn't going to be enough for me, like the direction that it was going, it wasn't going to be enough. And we never partnered with the major label and we never got that, you know, that, that mega payday again from a, a, a company that just supported us. So I kind of felt like I had to go out and, and take advantage of other opportunities. I came from a, um, an advertising and marketing background. That's what I studied at Syracuse. A lot of what we did it at, at in the music business of hip hop was advertising and marketing. And so I started working with different brands and different artists and, you know, I really enjoyed that. And that that's kind of the level where I went. I, I also really liked working with artists in general, and they didn't have to just be, I learned that they didn't have to be signed to me to work with them. So I, you know, I had the opportunities to work with KRS-One and Pete Rock, and uh, we did a project at Cornerstone with Kanye West. And, um, you know, we did stuff with Big Boy, and I ended up doing distribution deals with Talib Kweli and just artists that I wouldn't be able to sign, uh, but I, I ended up being able to be in business with them. Joey, Joey Badass, you know, more recently, um, I work with a company called Cinematic Music, which is an you know, reminds me a lot of Duck Down in the beginning, but they've got a lot of investment and they're this, you know, really big, uh, independent label of today, uh, with tons of artists and I consult them as a, as a record label. So I, I don't know, for me, I kind of saw that I had a lot more to offer and, that that's where I wanted to be. It wasn't so much about any one particular product.
0: You were able to take your life that seemed like it could have been this traditional Jewish life and go the exact opposite way and become this great badass, immersed by amazing <laughs> badasses, and, and it, it's a phenomenal story and it's inspiring. What's your message to young Jews out there that want to pursue their dreams?
1: Well, stick to what, you know, stick to what your heart is telling you, stick to what your passion is. Another overused phrase, right? Like they say, if you, if you do something that you love, you won't be working a day in your life. I think it's bullshit. You'll eventually, you know, you'll even if you love it, it'll eventually feel like work. So I won't lie to you and tell you that, but it's great to have a passion about something that you're going to get involved with. And, and it should start there because at some point in time, even when it gets difficult and things become stressful and you have losses and you're not doing well, you can fall back on that passion. And for me, that passion is great music, discovering a great artist, watching a great artist grow, uh, watching them emerge and, and, you know, break through in the business I still have a passion for that. I I, I dislike a lot of the day to day. I dislike a lot of the politics of the music business, but I do love the music and I do love, you know, the art form. So, whatever you're doing, hopefully you have a passion for it. I think that that helps along the way.
0: Drew, That's it. You are a badass Jew. Thank you for being <laughs> our badass Jews. I appreciate it, man. That was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. It was a, a great conversation.